Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's spot on four o'clock and that's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, Palestinian-Australian Nada Breck speaks about her family, their journey to Australia and her visits to the occupied West Bank. The Nautilus Minerals Company hopefully has gone from PNG, but others are waiting in the wings to mine the deep sea floor. Speaking with Natalie Lowry, who's the media coordinator of Deep Sea Mining Campaign. Issues impacting on Port Phillip Bay and surrounds with Neil Blake, the Port Phillip Bay keeper, and journalist, author and researcher Nick McClellan, and issues discussed at the Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu. Last week he spoke about climate change, climate emergency, which was the main issue, but there were others at the same time, so we'll hear about that today. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another week. Once again we heard that mantra of fossil conservatives. Coal remains an important industry for True Blue Aussie and it remains part of the global energy mix. Fossils Energy Minister Mark Canavan of Coal or Fossils Minister Angus Failure or maybe Big Supremo Scuttle the Morlach Sun himself flashing a lump of beautiful coal I hear. No, no, none of them. It was Socialist Party out of control radical penny left wing. And it's so refreshing to know the Socialist Party has learned its lesson. Don't oppose the government on anything. A surefire method of getting yourself elected. Ask whether the uh, whether the uh, socialist or stroke she would not have upset our Pacific neighbours, unlike scuttled them in rejecting a call to ban coal, Penny reassured the great international resource corporations, of course not, coal remains an important industry for True Blue Aussie, and it remains part of the global energy mix. Just thought I'd repeat that. But Penny then displayed the cosmic policy difference between the two major parties. Scuttle then did not respect the importance of climate change to nations it is wiping off the map literally, she said. So presumably Penny would have rejected the coal ban in the communique with respect, sensitivity. Thank you Penny, thank you socialists, thank you True Blue Aussie, they would have said, for being so considerate about destroying us. Similarly on the threat of climate change, if there is, in the With Friends Like These Who Needs Enemies Department, this week former Fossils Minister, now coal lobbyist Ian McFarton, praised Penny for her endorsement of coal and abandonment of our neighbours. I was heartened, he said. Penny is a very pragmatic person. Anthony Albinuzzi should be congratulated for aligning the socialists on this and taking a bipartisan approach with the government on coal. Ian, of course, is not the with French subject. We expect that of him. No, Anthony bipartisan, Anthony alongside Penny, and the socialist fossils resources shadow Joe Facts Given Wrong, who said true blue Aussie coal is relatively clean. 
That's like saying renewables, the sun, the wind, are relatively dirty anyway. Relatively clean would be used to generate electricity for at least another 20 years. And we should continue to capitalise on the demand for coal to create wealth and jobs here in Troubluwazi. Echoing another with friends like a contestant that highly esteemed not evil union, the AWU, which attacked the New South Wales Caring Business Class Party government. Uh, oh, for its anti-worker agenda are here again? Well, no again. It attacked the government for not standing up to activists, including many farmers opposed to coal seam gas extraction and fracking, for not driving forward the development of local gas resources. See, it's jobs, jobs, jobs and the economy, stupid. Infinitely more times important than irrelevancies like saving the planet. And pragmatic penny? During the election campaign, she was a strident voice against coal. So we can expect serious, meaningful differences in climate policy next election from Joel and pragmatic Penny and bipartisan Anthony. Ditto on the world stage. Thanks to US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, at the G7, the rich of the world talk fest, failed to issue a final communique on climate change, if there is, as Donald announced separately that he believed in exploiting the financial benefits of fossils while ensuring the US of has the cleanest air and the cleanest water in the whole world. And he knew more about climate change than almost everyone else in the whole world. He did modestly say more than almost anybody, but the others, the G6, said he didn't understand how to address the issue. Expressing concern and the need for doing something doesn't mean you have to do something. You don't have to do anything. And it allows us to express the same concern and need to do something at the next Rich of the World Talk Fest. Speaking of the profits in fossils, Donald expressed his deep personal concern for the population of Greenland, the 52nd state, by offering to buy the place off Denmark. An incredibly generous offer. No relation whatever to getting US of hands on all those lovely resources being liberated by the melting ice and melting permafrost. A perfect circle. The corporate fossils create the melting, then take advantage of it so they can assist the whole world to have energy. And poor Donald was quite properly upset when Denmark not only knocked back his offer, but described it as absurd. How disrespectful can you get? So disrespectful, Donald was forced to cancel a state visit to Denmark, and we all know Donald isn't easily upset by ignoramuses who disagree with him. As Donald offers and Denmark declines, wonder what the Greenland population itself thinks of the whole thing. Standing in the back row at the G7 group photo, scuttle them was the talk of the world leaders, even if not by name. Uh, who's he, they all asked. Now, perhaps our only comment on that decision this week. We can have mixed metaphors, so surely we can have mixed nursery rhymes. Georgie, Porgie, Puddin' and Pie kissed the boys and made them cry. All the king's horses and all the king's men will never put Georgie together again. 
but let's hope the verdict helps the living victim and other victims get together again. Sadly, it's too late for George's second victim. In this case, no, a, a second comment. On a positive note, George and his old mate, Gerard Richdale, are back under the same roof again. Amazing, when they lived together in Ballarat, George had no idea, no idea, his mate father, Gerard, was a serial pedophile. No connection, but we gain new respect for the credibility of Sydney shock jock Alan Court in the John's deeply researched opinions after he accused people of misinterpreting his comments that Big Supremo scuttled them should stick a sock down New Zealand Big Supremo Jacinta Ardern's throat. Yes, yes, how were you misinterpreted, Alan? They quoted what I said word for word. So it's quite possible Alan was also misinterpreted after he said former True Blue Aussie Big Supremo Julia Gallinghard should be stuffed in a sack, taken out to sea and thrown overboard. In fact, by quoting him word for word, we've been misinterpreting poor Alan for years on everything. Thank goodness we don't have to misinterpret the great truths brought to us by Lord Rupert of Wapping. For instance, if it wasn't for Lord Rupert, we wouldn't know the depths to which dull bludgers sink. Afraid of hard work, the headline screamed. Farmhand experiments shunned by jobless. See, this scheme allowing young doll bludgers to earn up to 5000 a year over and above their public handout, on which they whoop it up, if they work on farms and agriculture, picking stuff, planting stuff, canning and packaging stuff, and only 400 applied when there were 7,600 placements, and they could also get an additional fabulous $300 travel and living away allowance if prepared to travel more than 120k to work, which would go ahead hell of a long way. Naturally, Lord Rupert's whopping sin decried this display of obvious sloth. Go on whooping it up on their public handout, but we do have to wonder, listener, why young people wouldn't want to go and work in agribusinesses when we hear such glowing reports about their working conditions. Why they would be afraid of hard work. Lord Rupert quoted a Queensland carrot farmer who bemoaned he had to employ overseas workers because locals don't want to do the work. Can't understand why not. And the Minister for Starve the Poor, Michaelia Kosh, the workers, also decried the, the sloth of bludging youth. And the head of Agri uh, Ag Force couldn't understand why it was difficult to attract workers. We are surprised and disappointed that the trial has not been a success because agriculture is a dynamic, exciting, innovative and well-paying industry. Makes us even more critical of those young doll budgers, doesn't it? Unless he meant well-paying for his members at AgriForce. No, no, it, Lord Rupert's correct. They're, they're just afraid of hard work. At least he admits for his own purposes that it is hard work. And the caring Ag Force employers wouldn't dream of exploiting young unemployed workers. Presumably the overseas workers are the Pacific Islanders whom our Deputy Big Supremo Michael McComick says can come here and work while their homes are sinking into the briny. And it might have helped if he'd explained just a bit how that was going to do anything about them not sinking into the briny. Finally, spare a thought yet again for poor, besieged, exploited, caring employers. The federal court ruled last week that lazy, avaricious workers who work longer hours than normal, 
personal leave, like sick leave, should be paid on the number of hours they actually work rather than the basic hours. And poor caring employers say this will cost them a fortune, including in back pay, which the court ordered. Our old mate in us will cost workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, which represented the caring employer in this case, could, could hardly speak. The decision is inconsistent with the widespread industry practice, he gasps, uh, which is in us to rip them off. Surely they must have consulted the workers about the industry practice of not paying them. And that was Mr Kevin Healy. And he didn't say goodbye. I'm not quite sure what happened there. But there you go. That's why I hesitated. I was waiting for him to say goodbye to us. But he will be back on tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for City Limits with a, with a few friends. The annual APAN Australian and Palestine Advocacy Network fundraising dinner is next Sunday at Aurora Receptions in East Brunswick and there is still a small number of tickets available. Apart from a delicious three-course dinner, there will be speakers, an amazing auction, opportunities to purchase Palestinian products and to hear about advocacy work for Palestine. One of the speakers will be Nada Breck, a Melbourne-based personal injury lawyer. And I spoke with Nada yesterday and began by asking her about her family, how the Nakba impacted on them. So, as you know, the Nakba happened in 1948. My mum and dad's family were impacted in different ways. My mum's family left in, in 48. They were living in a, in a city called Suffolk. My grandfather was a professor in, in a university in mathematics. He had to leave Suffolk in 1948 and take refuge in Jordan following the Nakba. As you can imagine, the, the picture of people being exiled from their homes and walking to any neighbouring uh, country that would give them, I guess, a chance at another, a new beginning. At the time that they took refuge in Jordan, they had three boys and two girls. They never returned, so it's, it impacted them in, a, in my mum's family in the sense that they never returned to their uh, initial home. And, uh, and had to roam around the Middle East for uh, many years. Um, to this day, um, everybody in, is in a completely different country. Uh, that's how it impacted my mum's family. In terms of my dad's family, they actually remain in the West Bank to this day. As a result of the neckbed, my grandfather from my dad's side lost his business in selling a, a special Nabulsi soap. So we're from a city called Nablus in the West Bank. And Nabulsi soap is basically comprised of olive oil and a lot of, you know, organic material. Time the Nakba happened, my grandfather had a business selling these soaps all across Palestine and the Middle East. And following the Nakba, he he lost his business completely. He was not allowed to trade um, in, in the occupied territories in newly established Israel at the time. So he's had to reconsider what kind of business he wants to get involved in. He he was living in Nablus at the time and my family, my dad's family still live there to this day. It's because Nablus was never occupied by Israel in 48. So uh, Nablus is part of the West Bank, which um, as you would know, 
is considered Palestinian territory from uh, 1967. That's how the Nakba impacted my immediate family and, and extended family. So you've got a mother in Jordan and a father in Nablus. How did they yeah. get together? My dad left Nablus in about 67 because of lack of employment opportunities and because of the occupation of the West Bank in 67. He decided to leave Nablus and he moved to Kuwait. But before that, he was uh, studying at university. He um, did a scholarship at, in, in London, finished off his bachelor's in, um, and master's in, in telecommunication engineering. And after he completed all his studies, he went to Kuwait. My mum was a dentist. By that point, my, her family moved from Jordan to Saudi Arabia, and, and she was working at her uh, her brother's hospital in Saudi Arabia at the time. Coincidentally, a lot of Palestinians migrated to Kuwait at that time because it was, I guess, a young country, still developing and needed a lot of professionals. And, and Palestinians in particular were quite educated. And, and so a lot of Palestinians are said to be, you know, the, uh, the forefathers of Kuwait the ones who helped develop it to what it is today. So a lot of Palestinians went to Kuwait and from them were my parents. They met at a, a conference, actually, you know, about jobs and, and opportunities and the Gulf region and all the kind of opportunities that were coming about in those areas. And so, yeah, so they met at a conference and I guess it blossomed from there. My mum and dad obviously got married as well. They got married in Kuwait in 83. Yeah, and, and they stayed in Kuwait up until the Gulf War, ni 1990. And what was their journey to Australia? It's a long way from Kuwait to Australia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I guess following on from the Gulf War and and all the, 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 the chaos that was happening around the region, there were openings for immigration to Canada, the US and, and Australia. Just one week before the Gulf War broke out, my dad had finalised his paperwork to migrate to Australia as a skilled migrant with his telecommunications background. Uh, he was accepted and uh, they came to Australia, initially to Melbourne, spent seven months in such a difficult situation because they couldn't find a job in the first seven months of being in Australia and had to just live off savings, government assistance. Following, he found uh, a job in, in Tasmania, actually, in Hobart, stayed in Hobart for about five years till they moved back up to Melbourne. So it was quite a long journey, but I think it was a really difficult one as well. And my dad always tells me about a story when they came to Australia through Sydney Airport. Their plane arrived around 12 midnight. Security had put all their bags on the street because the airport closes at 12 midnight. And, and so they found themselves in a street, in a dark street, in a strange country, waiting for their next flight at 6 a.m. to Melbourne. Airports closed. They don't know anyone. And I guess there is that, um, as you can imagine from that image, it would have been quite scary and quite difficult for them coming here for the first time. That's their uh, initial journey to Australia. And when we think of the migrant experience, we think of, well, maybe people have come from one country and they've transited to another. But you've talked about your family who have, who have lost their homes and yeah. all the different countries that they had to try and 
settle in and then have to move on and move on. And then finally to Australia, after living in countries where they knew the language, to come to Australia down at the other end of the earth without a language. Yeah, it, it is quite a difficult journey. And I think, you know, when looking at it from the perspective of what initially drove us to leave our country, it's just calamity, it's, it's uh, chaos not being able to find employment elsewhere, you know, having really young children and not being able to provide them a life that they deserve, uh, and then having to force yourself to to come to a country where you know nothing about it. And, and you can imagine at that time, you know, there's very limited internet, there's very limited resources for someone to educate themselves about where they're landing. But I I think my family were really, really educated and, and, and came having analysed all the risks and all the benefits of it um, and coming into it knowing that they can benefit the country and, and uh, in return get a benefit for themselves of, you know, a better future, more security, yeah, but still remain inclined to our country, to Palestine. We always identify as Palestinian Australians. Um, and that's something that we hold dearly. So it is a difficult journey, but I think um, it, it just had to. Unfortunately, for every for most migrants, it's because of hardship that they are forced to take a leap of faith and enter into a place they know nothing about. How was life for you growing up as a Palestinian Australian? Look, it took me quite a lot to appreciate my identity. I guess in terms of your question of how was it uh, growing up, you know, often it's a bit of a balancing act. Like sometimes you feel like you don't belong in both worlds and and sometimes you feel like you want to belong in one over the other and don't want to have any association with anything. And, and sometimes you just so in love with what, where you came from that you kind of wish life turned out different. So it was mostly a balancing act, and particularly um, as a teenager, up to you know 13, 14 years old, I had no idea how how our family was truly affected by the Nakba, how how we were affected by the Palestinian crisis. I had no idea. I just in my mind it was always somewhere where you belong to, but you never really experienced. So until I got to um, year nine, year ten, I had a really great history teacher she was such a, a a passionate teacher and she made me really want to learn more about the deeper roots uh, my deeper roots where I came from what what is the story uh, behind my family leaving uh, Palestine and, and why are we where we are today and she really helped me find my way and and I, I began to love history I began to read more, you know, what is the Balfour Declaration, what happened, you know, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, you know, what was Oslo, what was, uh, what was this like Pico Agreement, you know, what happened in 1948, why did it happen, and, and where do I stand in all this? It was such an eye-opening experience, and it, just learning and just teaching myself what has happened. Through that process, I really began to become such an such a passionate, I guess, advocate for Palestine because it it was my blood. 
among everything else in the world, it was my blood. And I began to love to talk about it. I began loving to, to read about it. And, and, and we went to Palestine. I initially went to Palestine when I was four years old. So I don't count that time because I was too young to remember anything. But I remember mostly the time I went in 2009 with my sister, my mom and my dad. And I just remember really, really appreciating my identity. And, and I think that that trip in 2009 really solidified how I view myself and how I view where I stand in the broader world. And as an Australian, I could I could use this passion to, to speak. I could use this passion to learn. I could use this passion to, to pursue a, a whole career. As, you know, as an Australian, I have that freedom of expression that I don't have um, as a Palestinian. And as an Australian, I have an opportunity to help and, and benefit people who have experienced the same or similar kind of circumstances or, you know, others who have felt, you know, injured or hurt by something that's happened in their lives or someone who's voiceless, who can't speak um, when they are in a particular identity, but they can as a different identity. So it's more of a balancing act. And I'm, I'm finding now as I'm growing up and I'm, you know, I'm in my mid-twenties and I'm, I'm figuring out, you know, I'm in that middle ground where I've got the best of both worlds and I can use it to help the broader world that I am a part of. It was interesting, but it was also, I think, my family, my mum and dad were very passionate about teaching us our roots and I, and I hope to do that to my kids as well. How did you prepare yourself for this visit? For the, the first visit, I... Other than reading a lot about Palestine and the history behind it and all the different kind of, all the different events that have happened to lead up to where we are today. But how did you cope with the reality when it was there in front of you? An occupied country, your parents' country. Yeah. Look, I wasn't really mentally, emotionally prepared to deal with what my family has to go through in there. Um, and you see, like I felt the reality when I lived with my pet, with my family in Nablus, in the occupied city. Oh, the reality was really tough, and I had no idea what to imagine before going there, other than stories and what history dictates is happening there. But the reality was very bittersweet. People there, in terms of the reality, and I'm trying to paint a picture here. You know, I imagine people to be very gloomy and, and negative and, and, and sad and desperate. But on the contrary, they were people with so much positivity, people who had such a faith in God. They accept with whatever God bestows on them. But they work hard and they try their best and they leave it to God's hands. So there's this odd calmness in, in the air. And then you've got the, the bitter side of it, wherever you're walking. See, Nablus is a city between two mountains. Mountain uh, Jabal Aibal is what it's called. And the other one is called Jabal Nar. The city of Nablus sits between those two mountains. And you see, the Palestinian city is obviously between the mountains, but they can't build on the mountains or in the outskirts um, that are high up. Those are where the settlements are and military bases. 
and it was really eye-opening because every night, you see, there's this red light flashing and you just see it flashing and you can't stop looking at it and it's, it's looking down on this huge city and it was really eye-opening and it was actually really scary. It was a really strange feeling because it feels like a, it's like a prison, like an open-air prison. And it was really, really confronting. And yet the people in Naples, you know, my family, in that particular visit, we went to have a barbecue and we, you know, we'd be playing volleyball and then there's this red light at the top. I can't stop looking at it, but nobody else seems to notice it. They're like, oh, well, it's, it's you know, you see it every day. There's no, you know, just don't go up the mountain. But as long as we are where we are now, we're okay. But you see, there's a limit. Now we always we're always taught the sky's the limit, the world your oyster. You are free to think and feel as you want. You know, there's no limit. But there is a limit, and it's very obvious. And that was very confronting. You know, the limits of what you can say, the limits of how far you can look up into the sky, how far you can look to to the sunset, because you're sort of surrounded. But yeah, it was it was quite confronting. But I think it it opened my eyes to um, what they go through on a daily basis. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Palestinian Australian Nada Breck, one of the speakers at this Sunday's APAN Australia Palestine Advocacy Network annual fundraising dinner in East Brunswick. What about the limits on people's lives in the sense of where they're allowed to live, what sort of work they're able to do, where the children are able to go to school, things like that? So look, following the 1967 war and um, the Oslo Accords, the Palestinian Authority have taken over West Bank and Gaza. Technically, people living in the West Bank are, are, are free to move around, uh, you know, go to Ramallah, travel within the West Bank, but beyond the West Bank they can't, and within Jerusalem they can't either, unless they're of an old age and they've got a, a certain kind of uh, permit, then they, they'd be permitted. In a space of, I don't know exactly how far it is, but the, the West Bank, I would say, would probably be, you know, 80 kilometers wide, probably even less, and still people are not free to move, to, to travel to every city in the, in the West Bank. In terms of what they can do, well, look, you have to imagine, you know, these people, a lot of them have family businesses. So, like my uncle, for example, sells timber. He imports timber and he sells it and, and uh, to furniture shops so that they can build furniture and tables and couches and whatever you can with timber and so he his sons inherit that and they work alongside him in that so they're allowed to have that but again who can they sell to how far can they go with their business is also limited and a lot of things you know have to go under the rug you know a lot of business has to be done under the rug or it has to be dealt with in a different way but you know as long as you know they have the proper permits and and, and most people do um, as long as they've been accepted for it 
they, they can go on with their own businesses, their family business. So you have each different, each family has their specialty. A family has jewelry as a specialty. Other families have clothing as a specialty or fashion. Others have cars or mechanics. So each family has their specialty and that passes on and they, and the family internally gets to keep that as they did in the olden days. In terms of schools and everything, look, Nablus in particular, that's because my family lived there, I know it the best. But Nablus, uh, for example, has schools, has an incredible university called Al Najah, which in Arabic is translated to the success. They get to go to normal school, normal, normal university. But again, when things come to political matters or anything associated with history or politics is always, I guess, limited sort of minimize as little as possible so as you know not to I guess make people question and wonder and and, and think what could be done but look despite that you know the, the Palestinian Authority has control over that land and and so people the Palestinians are free in, in that area but obviously since settlements have been coming you know settlements have been building have been being built and you know there are a lot more settlers there are a lot more checkpoints in the west bank despite the fact that it's palestinian authority it, it's uh, it's really difficult to move around and it's very difficult to any issues of politics and as i said history and as well as land and property they're all three very contentious matters in that area it's really sad to see and i wish things were different but um i think the rise in settlements is causing more of an issue than anything else. You're just back from Palestine. Was this your next visit or have you been there in the intervening period? I have been there in the intervening period. I went there in 2013 with a group called Know Thy Heritage, which is uh, sponsored by the Holy Ecumenical Foundation in the US. Their purpose is to unite Palestinian Christians, Muslims and Jews in an effort to combine us all together to unite us with our common history in the Holy Land. So I went with a, a huge diaspora of Palestinian kids of my age from the U.S., from South America, from all across the world. The other time I went was in 2014 with my dad just for a visit and just to see family. And uh, since 2014, this is my first time back in 2019 with my mum, my dad and my brother. Yeah, so I've been beautiful. She's beautiful. And this time was a little bit different because of the time of year. Yes, absolutely. It was um, lucky for us we experienced Eid for the first time in Palestine, uh, for the first time for myself. Can you explain Eid? Yeah, of course. Eid al-Adha is a celebration Islamic holiday, Islamic celebration. In English, it's called the Festival of the Sacrifice. It basically honors the, the willingness of Prophet Abraham to sacrifice his son as an act of obedience to God. And it just symbolizes the Prophet Abraham's faith in God and, and his son's willingness to accept whatever God has bestowed on him, whatever his faith is. It's the second of our, our, our two Eids, so it's basically like like Christmas. You know, everybody gets together, family gets together, eats so much, so much food, and and just gives gifts 
to each other and, and to the kids and sing songs and just a time to remember God and remember what he has blessed us with in this life and to eat, 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 eat and enjoy the blessings of the land, whether that's in, in animals, whether that's in, in fruit, in crops and in everything really, it's just a time to really reflect on God's blessings. Luckily for us, we got to experience that in, in, in Palestine this year. On the first day, which was the 11th of August, we spent the Eid prayer. So in the morning, you do an Eid prayer where everybody prays together um, and you're, you're dressed in your newest outfit. You have to have a you know, beautiful scent and you just go to the mosque and you pray together. So lucky for us, we got to do that in Jerusalem this year. We went to the Dome of the Rock in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Sharul in the Muslim Quarter in Jerusalem, just next to the Holy Sepulchre Church and the Wailing Wall. So also beautiful, momentous um, religious areas. And we went to Dome of the Rock in the Al-Aqsa Mosque and we were just listening to the Eid prayers and the Quran being read in one of the, you know, the holiest city on earth for Muslims besides Mecca. My mom and I just couldn't stop crying as we were walking out of the uh, mosque. Uh, there were a lot of people walking around and giving us Eid sweets, so they're particular, uh, really tasty, sort of like baklava, but with a lot more pistachio and a lot more sugar and a lot of other things. Um, but it was so beautiful. Everybody just greeting everybody who we have, you know, we don't know anybody there, but, you know, everybody was just greeting everybody and everybody dressed in their best outfit and eating and drinking and enjoying where we are because I guess this slight air of you know worry that we might not have that area for much longer and particularly the uh, Alexa mosque is really significant for us and the Dome of the Rock um, because we believe there our uh, Prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven ascended to heaven uh, from Jerusalem from that area from Al-Aqsa, prayed as an imam, which is like the uh, the, the front runner <laughs> to all the other prophets up in heaven. Muslims used to pray towards Jerusalem, so that was the direction of prayer. So that area is such a momentous and religious, historical, every kind of significance you can think about, that is Jerusalem for us. So it was so beautiful to be there at the time. And then after that, we drove down to Nablus, spend it with family, which was so interesting because they had so many kids, so many kids and so many people to celebrate with. It was really, really beautiful. So no matter how the Israelis try to destroy the, the, the Palestinian people, the culture lives on. Yeah, look, absolutely. The culture lives on um, and, you know, the, the spirit of the Palestinian people and so many of the Jewish people as well it is so united and so harmonious and everybody has an attachment to the land and they have a shared culture it's really sad to see that politics and greed has to define how we treat each other and how we live with each other but yeah, absolutely. The the culture lives on, and this, you know. And I I always uh, mention this, but um, in in 1948, the father of Israel, uh, 
at that time, David Ben-Gurion, his people asked him, look, what will happen, you know, if the Palestinians revolt? What, what are we going to do about that? And his answer was that the old will die and the young will forget. And it's 70 years now on, and I promise you that the young have not forgotten. It really, it really lives on. So many people um, stand with us, and that's, that's something that we, we really uh, hold on to, um, and, and it's really beautiful. And a part of that support and working with Palestinians is the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and you'll be speaking at the dinner next Sunday, and I believe there are just a few tickets left. Yes, that's right. Tickets are already on sale, and they close tomorrow. It's a beautiful uh, fundraising dinner um, dedicated to the Palestinian cause and everyone who just wants to learn and, and understand a little bit further strongly encourage them to attend. It's Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network is an incredible organization. Tickets can be found on the APAN website, apan.org.au. is on this Sunday at, at, uh, at 6.30 uh, p.m. at Aurora Receptions at 149 Donald Street, Brunswick East. I strongly encourage people to come by, get a taste of Palestine, get a taste of what um, it's, uh, it's, it's like in Palestine. It's really, really beautiful. So I, I will be speaking there, which is really exciting. I'm hoping to do, think, to, to do something a little bit different, talk about bringing Palestine to Melbourne, giving a bit of a poem about my experience in Palestine and, and this recent visit. Really excited. It's going to be great. And you know what's really great about APAN and, and all these organizations is some of our greatest advocates, you know, we work alongside all of Kids Foundation, which is based here in Melbourne as well. Their, their main focus is on uh, giving Gazan children an opportunity uh, for a better life, and they fundraise for their orphanages and, and, and so on, hand-in-hand hand with APAN. And what's really great as well is we're always in communication and uh, in an alliance with the Jewish Voice for Peace, which is so beautiful. They're such a great uh, organization. They're based in the U.S. They're actually the beacon of hope. Yeah, all these organizations working together for a better future, hopefully a future filled with peace and freedom for everyone. Thank you. Thanks. And that was Nada Break, a Palestinian-Australian talking about her family, their journey to Australia, what it was like following 1948 and how they've coped in that time and how she has coped as a, a young Palestinian growing up away from her homeland. And that dinner, there's still a couple of seats left if you have been thinking about it and haven't quite got to thinking further. Get on to the APAN webpage apan.org.au and the dinner is in East Brunswick at in not quite sure oh it is 149 Donald Street East Brunswick and that's Sunday evening at 6.30 so if that's something that you feel that you'd like to do do get onto it really quickly because there's only a few tickets left and one of the great things that I always find about going to an APAN dinner is that well, at most times they have beautiful Palestinian olive oil for sale. It's just, you know, you can think of many other reasons to go, but the Palestinian olive oil is just special. So 
I just urge anyone who's think, been thinking about it and hasn't quite got there, apan.org.au. This is 3CR. I'm Jan Bartlett. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And it looks as though spring is finally here, so it's T-shirt time. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian made and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Nautilus Minerals, one of the world's first companies to plan to mine the seafloor, is reportedly on its last legs as creditors have voted in favour of liquidation of the company. Today, first, focus on the price paid for this venture by many, both the PNG government, the communities in the vicinity where the seabed was to be mined, and others. I'm speaking once again with Natalie Lowry, the media coordinator for the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, a group which, together with a number of international NGOs, have published a report titled Why the Rush? Seabed Mining in the Pacific Ocean and also Urban mining can save the seabed from exploitation. First, Natalie, that price paid for this venture. So with the recent announcement of Nautilus or, you know, from the beginning of this year, they've been seeking protection against bankruptcy and obviously the latest, the two main shareholders have sort of taken control. So effectively Nautilus is liquidated. It's benefited those two shareholders, but it certainly has not other creditors and other uh, smaller shareholders, which actually includes the PNG government, which held a 50% equ- equity in Nautilus, um, the Solar One project, which was the first deep sea mining project to be given the green light. And so that's left a massive debt, which is equivalent to like one third of PNG's annual health budget. And as many people know in PNG, there's very little medicine in the hospitals. Um, in more remote areas, they have very little access to health and not only that there's also you know other other very important things like education in the last year we've seen teachers not get paid so yeah it has had on a flow-on effect for sure when you see png take on yet more debt for a, a development project that has never even gone ahead and now they're stuck in a situation where you know what what can they do Ida Copa, which is the Papua New Guinean government company that has that stake 
did go to the Canadian court to try and regain some of the failed investment. They didn't win, but they are looking to appeal and they have taken on a Canadian lawyer. So that's where it's at now. So they may still have a chance to recoup some of that money. But it's still uh, a really unfortunate investment on the behalf of the PNG government, um, a silly investment, one could say. Even former Prime Minister Peter O'Neill had said it was a stupid investment, so he's quoted in, in the media saying it's a stupid investment. And is this the first time, because we know there's been lots of development money in um, PNG investment by the, the government, is this the first one that's really failed for them, or have there been no. others? No, I mean, PNG is in massive debt, and even though, I guess, on paper, the extractive industry, particularly mining, looks like it gives the most GDP, a lot of that money goes out of the country. And the reality is, AxNow, which is an NGO in PNG, based in Port Moresby and, and um, I think in the Eastern Highlands as well, the studies that they've looked at is around customary land ownership and the informal economy, and that, in fact, gives far more than what this sort of Western economy that we would see, this sort of development economy. But it's not recognised. It's not recognised in the GDP. But people growing their vegetables, taking them to market, that income that then sends their kids to school, that's not accounted for, that informal economy, which often is um, a lot of women. So this is sort of where this is sort of like a false economy in a sense. We're not actually seeing what really could benefit Papua New Guineans, which is their custody land ownership, their right to their land, and the amazing sort of agricultural and also just their knowledge as Indigenous people who've had connection to their lands for thousands of years. This is what a lot of Papua New Guineans are calling for, not these new Western, wild west developments like um, deep sea mining. Can we focus on the on the people who are, have been fighting this development over the many, many years, the communities? How has it affected them? What have they been forced to put into this campaign to the detriment of what they should have been doing for the local economy and the local people? One is the Alliance for Warra Warriors based in New Island province, for example, um, was a school teacher. Really, for the last nine years, he hasn't been able to do that, in part because he has committed himself to stopping this industry. Not only that, they're fighting illegal logging, they're fighting the impacts of climate change, but also he was almost in part banned from being a teacher in New Island province because of his stance against seabed mining. So they take huge risks and also take them away from their families. You know, probably being able to earn some other money for their families is huge sacrifices these frontline communities make in standing up against such industries. And we're not talking one or two years, we're talking this is over a decade now that some of these community members have sacrificed so much to stop it. And whilst they're really happy, to be honest, to hear what's happening to Nautilus, their fights don't end there. You know, as I've said, many are fighting climate change, you know, rising sea levels, illegal logging, other forms of developments. I guess it becomes a lifelong journey for them and they're very, it's, it's very inspiring for me to be able to work with them. They hold a lot of honour and respect in their communities for what they're doing. But it is huge sacrifice. And there's going to be other communities in the Pacific having a fight like this too with, because there are other companies gearing up to have a go themselves with deep sea mining. Yes, that's right. I mean, Nautilus, we're still, I mean, even though people think, you know, we will say Nautilus is dead in the water, you just don't know 100%. And PNG, for example, really those licences need to be terminated. And that's what 
see frontline communities, NGOs and the churches are calling for. And then across the Pacific, yeah, in Cook Islands in particular, you, you have a very an industry ramping up there in Tonga and Vanuatu and Fiji. But there is a very strong movement and last year at the last week, sorry, at the Pacific conference where Australia completely embarrassed themselves. The Prime Minister of Fiji called for a 10-year moratorium on deep-sea mining, and that was backed by Vanuatu and also Marape, the new Prime Minister of PNG. So that gives some hope. I mean, we would hope for a longer moratorium than 10 years, and also a moratorium that included, you know, not working on any regulations, no licences given or anything like that. And we still stand with the communities in PNG that are calling for a complete ban. Um, And this week in Port Moresby, the PNG Council of Churches have been meeting along with civil society for a whole week, talking about many issues and talking about what development means to them. And they have still come out in the media there very strongly saying, we want this to be banned. So I think today the Prime Minister Marape is going to be meeting with them all, which is great. He's called for this moratorium. So I guess the next steps is to for them to talk to him saying, you need to just cancel these licences so this industry does not come to PNG ever. And also there's a number of... NGOs, international NGOs, including your own, who have focused on this issue, this issue for many years. Yes, so we're a member of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, um, which is a coalition of many organisations, um, including some of the big ones like Greenpeace, WWF, Pew. And so Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, the status at the International Seabed Authority, So the work they've been doing there has been able to kind of keep things accountable within that space and push for stringent regulations to a point where we can hold off this industry. And the recent International Seabed Authority meetings that happened in Jamaica a couple of weeks ago, um, we actually saw Greenpeace come out. So they took the Esmeralda, one of their boats there, they're doing a pole-to-pole calling for a big ocean treaty, um, and they unfilled a stop-deep-sea mining banner. So it is really great to have... Some of those big NGOs come on board because they obviously reach a bigger audience than what you know a small campaign that like we are. Um, and then there's um, other groups in Portugal. They've also been Nautilus is also there. Seas at Risk, which is based in Europe, also do some really interesting work where they're completely against deep sea mining, but they're looking at the alternatives, like what can we do in a Western context, circular economy, urban mining. So, yeah, the movement's growing internationally, and that's very exciting for us because 11 years ago, the deep sea mining campaign, along with the, the frontline communities and PNG, was really the only voices. So in the 10 years we've been around, it's really great to see that people are really starting to rise up and say, we just don't need this industry. Can you explain a bit more about the International Seabed Authority, who they are and what right do they have or what rights do they think they have in this area? The International Seabed Authority, which is headed by Michael Lodge, is basically the UN body for this industry. So they've been handing out exploration licenses. I think now there's 29. This is an international waters, so it's a bit different to Nautilus in PNG, which is in the economic exclusive zones of PNG. So it is different, although with the deep sea mining campaign, we you know, are calling for a ban across EEZs and also in international waters. The ISA meets, International Seabed Authority meets, and is based in Jamaica, and that meets a couple of times a year, and it has obviously different arms. And there is NGOs, civil society do have observer status, but they're kind of locked out of a few other spaces, to be honest. We just recently launched a report called Why the Rush, and that exposes the corporate capture of this UN body. 
particularly with Michael Lodge and a company called Deep Green, which has emerged out of Nautilus, and this report actually exposes that. And it's just, it's just, you know, this is a speculative industry, so you have these sort of cowboy companies come in. And Deep Green has signed an agreement with Nauru, and we know the history of Nauru, so it's very unsettling to think that Nauru has gone into this agreement with this company. When you look at Deep Green's website and you look at one of their, their promo videos, you'll see Michael Lodge, who's the General Secretary of this UN body, the International Seabed Authority, in their video. Now, that for us is you know, of great concern and sees um, a lot about corporate capture of this body to us. So we're kind of pushing um, this report quite hard-hitting, um, but it does expose the history of Nautilus, the people involved in how they've moved to Deep Green and the money that they made out of Nautilus. They got out at the right time, walked away with $30 million plus each. And now they've set up Deep Green. And that's headed by a, um, the CEO, Gerard Baron, who's an Australian, is an advertising man. You know, he's been high up in advertising. So you can imagine their PR is slick, very different to Nautilus. So that's what they're up against now. And they're selling this industry. And they've been able to embed it into the ISA and be able to, you know, Gerard Baron's done a big speech in the ISA about this is for climate change and we need to mine our seabeds you know, to save the world kind of thing. And um, we know this isn't true. Our oceans are under massive threat. We don't need another industry like deep sea mining to be going in and digging up our deep seabeds. These, these seabeds, these ecosystems that we know very little about. How does Michael Lodge get away with the conflict of interest of, with a mining company and then also with the UN body? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and um, I guess we're the first people who have exposed it and this report's pretty recent. It's interesting. Uh, we haven't had huge pickup on it. It has in the Pacific. We think, you know, we've obviously shared this with civil society throughout the Pacific. We know that, that these, these sort of reports um, help them to make the decisions to push further, particularly for, like, the moratorium that's happening now. So a part of the work we do is to try and um, do this research to expose such things so civil society in the Pacific can have be armed with this sort of information. So, yeah, we, we want to push this out a lot more. We think, uh, we, you know, this is not the only place we're seeing corporate capture in the UN. I know Friends of the Earth International have a, a major campaign around this. Yeah, we'll keep pushing this, I guess, and working with our colleagues who are observers in the ISA to sort of, you know, really ask these hard questions, like, why is this happening? I'm sure Michael Lodge is feeling the heat. He felt the heat just by having the Greenpeace there at the ISA meeting. So I guess we'll continue to put the pressure on in the different ways we can. How serious is the push to have um, Nauru involved in this? It's international waters, but it's off Nauru. And I guess the agreement that um, they have with Deep Green, you know, for Nauru they see it as it's going to benefit us. And, you know, Nauru has been mined out. He's had to resort to taking Australia's gulags, our detention camps, for asylum seekers. So this is a country, this country that has, you know, let's say, been screwed over a lot. Um, and Australia has played a big role in that. And so now, I guess, that, you know, Nauru's in this situation. And we could, we could point a finger at the Prime Minister, but I guess they're desperate, you know. And so you have a slick company along like Deep Green saying, no, let's, let's go into this industry. It won't affect your environment and you're going to make all this money. But... You know, we, we believe this company is a bit of a cowboy country and it's very speculative. So we're unsure of really what benefits Nauru are going to have. Um, you know, is this Nauru being set up yet again for failure? You'd think once bitten, twice shy, wouldn't you? 
Well, you would, but um, no, I have a friend who's an academic who's been doing work there, and she did say, look, they don't have anywhere else to turn, and that's a sad fact. So while we could, you know, shun the Prime Minister or the President of Nauru, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's not as simple as that, and they're probably very desperate, and uh, maybe he's weighed options up and sees this as better than other industries that may be knocking on their door. But it's a concern because... You know, for us, we see through this sort of deep green propaganda and are very uncertain considering, you know, the people who set up deep green came from Nautilus and you've got a lot of money out of speculation of Nautilus to now set up deep green. You know, I really, is it the same agenda again? Is it just the sort of cowboy, you know, the sort of cowboy companies that we see go in, which usually paves the way for the industry to allow the biggest companies to come in? And we see that over and over again. So that's our concern about Deep Green and um, we feel for Nauru and Pacific nations who are maybe being blindsided in a sense by this industry. But if it's in international waters, how does that impact on Nauru? So the company is set up in Nauru and Nauru would possibly, the plans are they would set up some sort of port. So it may not, like okay, so it's not in the direct economic zone of Nauru, but we don't know the impacts of seabed mining in international waters and they'll go oh but it's just this little area here and we're just it's less than a it's less than a mine and on land but you know the ocean moves and the cumulative impacts of deep sea mining we actually don't know what the impacts are and that's what we keep coming back to is the precautionary principle and also just you know this is the common heritage of humankind and having had this discussion across the world you know international waters is for everyone and is this, is this something, most, a lot of people have no idea about this industry. So, you know, the industry rushing ahead without these sort of conversations is very disconcerting. And, you know, some, a company like Deep Green, a sort of startup company, they're the ones driving the speculative rush. And, you know, we're calling it sort of an unholy alliance with the, the UN body, which is the ISA. And this doesn't really heed well if we're going to enter into this industry in the, the best way possible. I mean, they say, let's, move, let's do it sustainably. How can you ever do mining sustainably? It's a furphy, that one. <laughs> Just talk for a couple of minutes about a second paper, which has the unlikely title, I believe, Urban Mining Can Save the Seabed from Exploration. You co-authored it with Dr Helen Rosenbaum. What were your arguments Working on the issue of deep sea mining, you know, you spend a lot of time saying, no, we don't want this. But we have to provide what the alternatives are. And there's a lot of research out there on urban mining. And urban mining is we all have our phones and laptops. There's a lot of metals and minerals in these devices. And these are some of the minerals and metals that they're wanting to access in the deep sea beds and also open up in new places. And so we're arguing that these devices should be designed from cradle to cradle. So they can be taken apart and recycled and those metals brought back into the system and reused. And this goes hand in hand with the broader kind of concepts around the circular economy. So really it's about, particularly in the Western context, you think about all our electronic waste that we've been sending to China and other places and now getting shipped back here. We should be creating an industry of working out how do we extract those metals and minerals so they can be put back into society instead of opening up whole new mines or whole new sort of um, extractive industries. So the research is there, but the political will isn't. And that needs to happen from councils up. 
it is happening in certain parts of the world, in places like Germany and Austria, um, even in parts of America. And there really is some great science around this. And I believe if you, you know, if humans are so clever to dig massive holes in the ground or build skyscrapers, I'm pretty sure we can do this one. And that is to reclaim the metals from the green tech and from these, you know, technologies that we're using daily. The problem is, too, is that a lot of these technologies are so disposable. You know, Apple will build a phone that will last a year and a half or so, and then they just get thrown away, or the new Apple phone comes out. So we need to change business as usual. So these technologies, as I said, cradle to cradle, that they're designed in a way, maybe they're modular, maybe it's like, well, the camera doesn't work, so that bit is able to come out. There is a fair phone that's um, designed this way, um, but it's very hard for these new ideas to hit the market because of the market that we're in and capitalism and the way it works and how kind of crazy it is, you know, the sort of throwaway society. So it's a, it's a new way of thinking, and I guess it also moves towards these concepts of post-extractivism, which is moving beyond mineral dependency. So instead of going, well, we'll just go and mine our deep seas, and then we'll, we'll just go and another planet, because that's their ideology, we need to be looking at closed systems. You know, nature works in this way, and we can reflect on that and probably do that quite quite effectively within our own new technologies. But we need the political will for that. And, you know, we can say, well, we'll get renewables and that's, that's the answer. But renewables is opening up industries like deep sea mining because this is what the industry is saying. We need to mine the deep seas for green tech, for hybrid cars. And, you know, you only have to look at lithium and see the devastation that, that's causing in places like Latin America. You're trying to now open up lithium mining in places like Spain and Portugal. So... We need to rethink, absolutely rethink. Mining is not the answer. We can't just keep extracting and extracting from this extraordinary planet we live on. We need to start working out ways where we can recycle and reuse and reduce our consumption. And we have to make sure we do it without exploiting people, particularly children. Right. We've seen all those photos of, of, of children playing or pulling bits to apart in the places like the Philippines or China and being exposed to chemicals or whatever. Well, that's, that's right, and that's why countries like Malaysia are sending waste back, because it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to build those new industries. That, and, and also, you know, we have to put the pressure on our companies to design these products in a way that are longer-lasting or, you know, are modular, or in some way we can extract parts of it so we can, we can um, keep recycling. It's crazy how disposable our society is with our technologies. And we have the minds out there. There is the research. There's some great research in Australia. There's research being done between Australia and China around urban mining. So it's something in terms of the deep sea mining campaign that we want to tap into more. Because the research is there, but it's how do you bring it out to, to everyday people to understand that this is a way that we can move towards. Um, now, this doesn't necessarily mean this is the... the answer for places like PNG. And PNG, they already had their own types of development. Thousands and thousands of years they lived sustainably with the land. So they already have their knowledges and ways to be able to continue that and create their own economies. But in our Western context, yeah, we really need to take a rethink and look at things like um, urban mining and other... And, and there is, there's a lot of innovation out there, but they're not getting the money for the research and development that some of these other industries are. And that's where the political will has to change. It sounds as though there's plenty of work ahead for you, Nat. Well, 
of us, Jen. Yes, yes, true, true. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. And that is Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. And, of course, it is up to all of us to do our bit and to stop using so much plastics and so many resources full stop and just stop the shopping and just be be thankful for what you've got and reuse it and reuse it and reuse it. You don't have to have another one. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 Next day, focus on issues impacting on Port Phillip Bay and the surrounding areas. And in the studio with me is Neil Blake, the Port Phillip Bay Keeper and one of the founders of the Port Phillip Eco Centre in St Kilda. A serious issue which many people might realise is happening is the areas around the coast. They're disappearing. Yeah, obviously there's been some uh, coastal erosion happening here and there for uh, quite a a number of years, probably the last 25 or so at least. Uh, But um, we've had a couple of recent severe weather events which hit Port Phillip Bay in particular that I've seen. Uh, You you would have heard about the end of Frankston Pier breaking off and uh, getting washed out away into the bay. It actually landed on the shoreline up a bit further north of, of Frankston. That was only a few weeks ago. Uh, so obviously pretty massive sort of um, wave energies to achieve that, but 
And if you can imagine, if it's going to wash away a fixed bit of pier, then uh, the sandy shoreline is also going to be heavily impacted. That same event, I think, took away a lot of the beach from Mount Martha North. Uh, And there was in the news the bathing boxes down there uh, standing with their feet in the water now, whereas once upon a time they were perched happily on a beach. So there are significant changes occurring uh, to our coast that are going to have uh, implications for infrastructure, the sort of uh, things like walkways and things that lead down to beaches now are leading into fresh air and so, so they've had to block them off and they're going to have to add to them you know so uh, things like piers breaking off that need to be repaired all of that sort of stuff but then there's also the um the impacts on the natural environments for example seaford the foreshore along there is quite a long or several kilometers of uh, dune vegetation which provides habitat for a range of birds and you know uh, coastal species, and also those linear corridors that are formed by around that um, Port Phillip Bay foreshores, particularly on the east side, which are pushed up against by roads in uh, fairly intense urban sort of uh, environment, do provide corridors for for bird species to move through seasonally, and migratory species, for example, like grey fantails and others that actually come through in autumn and and spring. So um, if they are lost, uh, because we're seeing, uh, you know, tea trees and things, just uh, the dunes collapsing that are supporting them now, so they're disappearing, that habitat is going to be lost as well. So just a a couple of things for us to be thinking about. We really do need to... uh, uh, get on to climate change and start to reduce our emissions and try and uh, get things in, in control so that we're not basically causing the diminishment of our biodiversity but also uh, just the environment that we enjoy and also provides us with economic opportunities. So it's not just the sea coming in surges, it's permanent. Yes, that's right. There, there is sea level globally has been measured to be rising at least a millimetre since the mid-1990s, you know, a millimetre a year, that is. So there is a gradual increase in sea level rises, but then when you couple that with extreme storm events and storm surges, that's that wave impacts really does carry away a lot of sand and uh, displaces it, causes problems, as I said, for infrastructure and also uh, habitat. And what about the dredging that happened a few years ago is that all forgotten about, or can we put some of the blame on what's happening to the dredging? Oh, well, if, you, if we want to go to court, <laughs> we could do that. Yeah. So the studies that uh, we did looking at the tide ch- uh, gauges that um, there's around about half a dozen at various points on the Victorian coast, including four or five in Port Phillip Bay, uh, showed that the um, tides uh, had changed, particularly in the the uh, south end of the bay, so uh, I'm sure the Mount Martha people would be interested in in that sort of thing. I don't have the resources to be taking uh, <laughs> governments to court. I mean, we're Blue Wedges Coalition, of which I was a part, took the federal environment minister to court to try and prevent that project from occurring and was unsuccessful. Now I'm just more interested in getting people involved and being aware of what's happening on the coast and looking at what we can do in the bigger picture to, re- to uh, d- reduce our emissions, trying to influence uh, 
other global players to reduce their emissions so we can get climate change under control. And you're finding that you're able to engage more with the local people in those areas like Mount Martha and Seaford that you mightn't have been before because suddenly they're seeing their recreation area disappearing? Well, that's right. I mean, that's basically one of the things I've been focusing on for a number of years because... um, Climate change is such a global and nebulous issue when you talk about it, you know, and people think, oh, well, you know, so what am I going to do? And, but and uh, if people aren't actually engaging in it and, and seeing it where they live, then it's just going to be something that's just a bit too far away for them to really want to take direct action about it. And so my interest has been in getting people to observe what's happening to their coast, getting them down, doing shoreline shell surveys and talking to them about what's happening and changes that are very real that are occurring so that um, they can see it for themselves. It's happening in their patch and and it's up to them to do something about it. And you're finding they are engaging? Oh, no no question about that. Yeah, so, I mean, but when when I say they, (laughs) there's lots of people out there in the community who still haven't, I I, I don't get to be in touch with, so I can't say that overall there's, there's a great shift in the community. We look at the last federal election, you do have to wonder how um, so many people could have uh, turned their back on uh, future concerns of the future generations and uh, more power to the climate strikers that are coming up around the country and I think it's on the 21st of this month. So uh, I'd certainly want to, I'll be there uh, with them and uh, give them every support that I can. But they are, the younger people are coming forward and you've just had the, the young Swedish girl off on a, on a yacht to America because she wouldn't use a powered ship. And you're, you're engaged with the younger people in those, those areas and taking, getting them to do surveys. Yes, but the problem uh, with the younger people at this stage is many of them aren't old enough to vote. You know? <laughs> and it's those people who are old enough to vote. Yeah, but if they can in- influence their parents, though... Surely. Yeah, well, that's, uh, or their grandparents. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, the demographic in Australia is that there's quite a significant proportion of the voting population that are, you know, more than 60 years old. And also when you find those coastal areas, you'll find a lot of older people might have uh, had their sea change um, shift up when they've retired and suddenly yes. what, what they expect is not there anymore. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I'm hoping to uh, engage with that older cohort because, uh, you know, it's, it's actually somebody thought we might have a, a group called the Bay Nomads or something like that, you know. So it's just it's got to be fun and social uh, because it's not all doom and gloom. The point about it is we still are a community. We still like a joke. And, you know, we like to get out and, and just feel like we're doing something positive. And uh, I think if we can uh, get that older group, who the retirees who you know, want to get out and get some exercise, but also be part of contemporary life and uh, becoming more on top of issues... And then they can uh, share that with their grandkids. And, you know, they've actually got some really strong purpose then in giving their future generations a, a better planet to live on. Now, the state government in Victoria, what have they been doing about issues like climate change or climate change itself? Parliamentary inquiry? Uh, yes, that's right. There, there's... Um, They've been going through a process of uh, setting some emissions targets or establishing, uh, you know, what could be 
policy settings, I guess, for uh, the kind of uh, levels of emissions that would be appropriate. And that's something that's um, been going on for at least the last 12 months. When you say emissions reduction, what are they... How are they... To be honest, Jan, that, that's... Uh, you, you could talk for 12, 12 months about that sort of stuff. And uh, to me, this is just, as I was saying before... Part of the dilemma we've got is that most people just switch off when they hear that kind of stuff. If it's not something that they can see and smell, then, you know, that, that's the real problem. And, and I, I feel that the community environment organisations and not-for-profit organisations need to, uh, un- as do uh, others, need to understand that our environmental future is going to be based on community development not, you know, and I see the Port Phillip Echo Centre, for example, as our main purpose is community development. It's not environment. Yeah, so if we talk about that, it's just too nebulous. And what does environment mean? I don't get into details of how it works because there's so many things that you could talk, you know, directions you could go. Which, uh, but what ultimately matters is that people take some personal responsibility. Uh, but they need to be given some motivation to do that and and often it's not facts and figures that will actually give them that motivation it's more that human connection and understanding that they really do have a responsibility for their grandkids and how do you incorporate that into the eco center well i take people down to the beach and go for a walk and look at shells and say gee look at that there's a bit of plastic washed up there look i wonder where that came from you know maybe we that plastic shouldn't have been on the street in the first place and you know so it's it's actually just seeing and and, and having a conversation with people and also doing um, beach profiling where we're recording sand surface levels across beaches so that we can measure how much is erosion is occurring and doing live mollusk surveys to see whether there's the bivalves and the, the animals that live in and on the seabed that actually keep the whole food system afloat, whether they're being displaced by the changing coast. You know, So all of that sort of stuff is a real tangible uh, way to, to engage in a conversation about climate change without sort of getting into uh, you know, when the submission is due. And when you have that information, what do you do with it? Well, we, talk, we share it with the community. That's the whole point of it, you know, so uh, that people can actually see that it's, it's real. This, is, this change is occurring. And uh, it's about getting on ongoing observations too, you know, so it's not just something that our citizen science programs aren't something that you just do for six months and then that's it. Uh, it's setting... Uh, benchmarks so that we can go back and do the uh, test and the record the surveys again in 12 months' time and be able to see what sort of changes occurred. What sort of changes are you seeing with maybe seabirds or the birds in the in the areas near the coast over the last few years? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Certainly there, there are birds still around, which is great probably for the first time for a while, saw a very large flock of uh, little black cormorants um, flying across the bay uh, about a month ago. Yeah, there would have been 70 or 80 of them, you know, and so haven't actually recorded consistently, though, 
the numbers over the years because I guess you need people who are d- dedicated to that particular topic. I used to do them years ago, but when I was a park ranger in St Kilda and I was out on a daily basis sort of along the foreshores, but since I've been more office-bound and also going into other areas, litter and uh, stuff like that have been more in the catchments around the bay as opposed to just on on foreshores. It's the sort of thing where you need uh, to have people who are consistently recording. But um, you still do see pelicans around St Kilda, for example, occasionally. Hoary-headed grebes come into the harbour, St Kilda Harbour in the wintertime. I've seen them there. But probably not as many as there used to be. And certainly uh, in bush birds flying over St Kilda, there's been quite significant uh, reduction in the diversity of species that I can recall seeing. Yeah, so there certainly has been um, probably a loss of species in birds generally, but I couldn't actually quantify that though because they haven't been keeping a, a consistent log. What about a newcomers? There has been uh, a number of species that have moved into the um, uh, southern areas of Australia and uh, in the pied currawongs are a good example, for example. They used to uh, come down to Melbourne in wintertime from central Victoria, which is their breeding stronghold, uh, but now they're residents in Melbourne. Crested pigeons are another one, which are sort of more of a uh, once upon a time, I believe, arid zone sort of species that are uh, now... Not seen in huge numbers, but fairly regularly, one or two you might see just feeding around on grasses and uh, in 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 Melbourne now. Yeah, so there's been a, a few that have come down from, and obviously the rainbow lorikeets too were relatively rare back in the early 1990s in in Melbourne, but now you know just thousands of them. So. Uh, and what does that say to you? That's a good question. Really, they're well, obviously they're very ad- adaptable, but um, at the same time, they probably have taken up space for other things like uh, eastern rosellas that might have used the same nesting hollows and things like that. So uh, I'm not sure whether the lorikeets are more bullying birds or whatever, but that's uh, probably an observation that um, some birds that are more aggressive are probably taking uh, habitat that was once occupied by other species. So noisy miners in particular are a native honey eater who um, actually mob other birds, smaller birds and even large ones, <laughs> and push them out, you know, so uh, they, they basically chase them out of their territory. So one of the most common birds I used to see around St Kilda back in the late 80s, early 90s, was the white-plumed honey eater. And they, um, well, about the size of a sparrow, so they're quite a small bird. Uh, now, I haven't seen one of them for years. Now, seashells have been a big part of your surveys for many years now. What's the importance of seashells? Well, the, yeah, it's basically the... Um, uh, animals, as I mentioned before, that live on and in the seabed and a lot of uh, shells like the little clams uh, uh, actually live and burrow through the se- intertidal sediments and, and sediments in general in the seabed. And in doing that, they're filtering, they're taking food and nutrient from that environment, excreting it out, so they're processing it, I suppose, and making it, it available to 
other animals in in the food chain. So, a bit like worms. Yeah, a bit like worms. They're sort of turning over the um, that nutrient and cycling it and making it more bioavailable to other species. So, in that sense, they play an important role in uh, keeping the system going. I've been interested in the fact that with sea levels rising and climate change, uh, there's a couple of things that will affect that group of species, the shells, uh, is in that um, as the oceans are becoming slightly more acidic, that can impact on their ability to create the shell material. So it's a uh, calcium-based sort of uh, material that, that forms those shells. So that's something to watch. So do you notice that the shells are changing? The, the density or whatever of the shells? No, I think it's going to be uh, a, a very a long-term process. And so what I've been doing, I guess, is to try and have at least establish some baselines as to what species are in, in the local environment around the bay. And so we may see if changes will come about. But there is generally more than one stressor, though, that's actually going to impact on a species at a local level and... Uh, so climate change impacts and ocean acidification may be one, but then there will be other things like pests and predatory species too in those populations. So northern Pacific sea stars are another species of interest because they're uh, an invasive pest that uh, originally came from um, around Japan, China. That's their natural range, but they were introduced probably through ships' ballast water into, into the Derwent estuary in Tasmania back in around about 1986. Subsequently, it came from there to Port Phillip Bay and when first recorded in the bay, I think it was about 95 or 96, 10 years later. How big are they? Apparently grow to about a half a metre <laughs> in size, but uh, I haven't seen anyone one anywhere near that in the bay. But um, they, uh, generally, they're... You know, maybe um, perhaps 100 millimetres across, but they can uh, get up in... I've seen some in the bay that would be 250 millimetres, perhaps, yeah. They haven't got a predator? Well, that's the question. Uh, it's possible that they do, and the, the most likely one is an 11-armed sea star, which is a native sea star which we have in the bay, which gets quite large too. And uh, they have, in fact, somebody sent me a photo of one eating a... Uh, a Northern Pacific sea star recently uh, from around Hampton. And thanks very much for that, Ken. That photo really tells the story. The problem with the Northern Pacific sea stars is they've got a phenomenal reproductive rate. So uh, they can produce, one individual can produce 20 million eggs. Like a, a lot of things, it's... It's all relative to, you know, how many predators are there out there to keep it down. So there there are other factors, you know, like water temperature will uh, uh, reduce the life of the half-life of the eggs, for example. You know, so the conditions have to be right for them to be particularly successful. And the the other main thing that they've got going for them is they eat practically anything too. So like dead fish and materials like that they'll eat, but they do feed on shoreline on shells uh, and those, those shellfish that I was talking about before that burrow in the sediment so there's potential for them to impact on that group that's actually playing a key role in, in maintaining our biodiversity in the bay and that's where the shoreline shelf surveys come in just so we can see which species um, 
well, uh, there's a study done in New South Wales which uh, put it very nicely. They, 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 on a shell study that they did for the whole New South Wales coast, which they entitled um, an analysis of death assemblages of shells. <laughs> so the shells are just dying to be on the beach. That's how they get there, you see. The most recent ones that we're finding are likely to have been possibly preyed upon by Northern Pacific sea stars. So it would be great if we could actually have more in-the-bay monitoring of where the Northern Pacifics are, just with divers, for example, reporting their locations and stuff so we can uh, correlate that with the beach findings. Uh, And ultimately get the community and government geared up to do some strategic removals or, you know, at least to understand what the impacts of these Northern Pacific sea stars are so that uh, there can be more investment on preventing and reducing their impacts. So they're visible in the sea near the shore? Oh, they're quite visible, yes. Sting? No, they don't bite or sting, no. So they're quite a pretty, uh, you know, most people think, look at them and say, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it's got a lovely sort of a purpley tinge to it. They're generally light yellow kind of uh, surface and nice upturned tips so they look cheerful and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, so uh, beautiful things but just happen to be in the wrong place. That's the problem. Did they do any surveys in the Derwent while they were... Yes, there have been quite a number of surveys done down there, which is good, you know, so we've got some sort of information which is useful, um, particularly on which species that they like to prey upon most. Interestingly, there's one thin-ribbed cockle, which is I've found in the shoreline surveys is to be quite widespread in Port Phillip Bay, and uh, so we've... can confirm that the, that species is still in the bay, uh, but numbers of the their shells have been turning up on beaches, and it's likely that the sea stars have been playing a role in that. I should mm. mention the other one too, which is of interest, uh, with the, was that at Point Jellybrand in Williamstown, uh, we were finding our surveys that abalone were quite plentiful in that area up until around about two or three years ago when the numbers dropped significantly. The locals there said that it's quite possible that uh, they're being poached, the abalone population is being poached by humans as opposed to sea stars. That's another application of the, doing these shoreline shell surveys is that we can pick up trends like that and maybe um, point to uh, what the causes are. Do you see much difference between both sides of the bay? Yeah, there's um, different parts. Of, like at, at Point Lonsdale, the top ten species down there, just about all of them were the snails-type uh, shells. Mussels, though, are fairly common. And that was the only bivalve that was found down at Point uh, Lonsdale. So, but uh, yet yeah, every beach is different, though. So rather than uh, two sides of the bay, or, uh, it's it's really noticeable that um, there's a different community in at every location we we survey. Have you had any time in the last month or so to go up the the rivers to have a have a look what's happening? And I know you do a bit of trawling on the rivers. Yes, we. Continuing our trawls and, and the Yarra River keepers been do good. They had a Yarra River litter blitz last week, so they've been doing good work there. I'll just mention too on that that um, we have estimated that there's 1.4 billion 
items of litter coming out of the Yarra and the Maribyrnong each year uh, combined around about 1.1 billion of that are microplastics which is fragments of plastic often it might be a bottle top sitting on the street and a car will run over it and it breaks it into lots of pieces so with our beach audits though which we've been conducting uh, for a couple of years now uh, we've just completed a round of those at our reference points one's at St Kilda West Beach uh, another one at Frankston Seaford uh, Mount Martha and Rye and uh, Eastern Beach in Geelong and Werribee River we didn't find much at all in the, the last audits which could be put down to the good work in, in the Yarra River <laughs> by the Yarra River keepers they're actually uh, reducing items before they get into the bay which is great Just finally Neil have you had any reports on the Stony Creek? Uh, no but um, there is we do have some sampled material which is going to be analysed soon by the RMIT Plastics Lab, so we'll be interested to see what they find there. That's, they have some equipment that can detect different contaminants on plastic items that have been found in waterways, so they can see what kind of contaminants are in those waterways. That's the creek that was affected by the, the fire? That's right, yeah. There is community action over this issue still, isn't there? Yes, there's very decided community action. There's a coalition of community groups, mainly from the western part of Melbourne, that have come together under the banner of the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance. And they've been really doing great work communicating the issue and putting the concerns about contaminants and plastics being stored inappropriately and and the likelihood of fires occurring there have been quite a number of industrial fires in the west over the past couple of years there was actually um, an interim report too on um, recycling and and waste management which seems to focus primarily on fire concerns you know so that's that was just came out a couple of days ago if people want to get involved in this further yeah well um the one of the key things about the group is they've been really effective in their communication. So if you Google Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance, there'll be, you'll get quite a few hits that'll come up. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Jan. And that indeed is Neil Blake, who's the Port Phillip Baykeeper and also one of the leading lights, if you could say that, at the Port Phillip Eco Centre in St Kilda. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. On the program last week, journalist, author and researcher Nick McClellan spoke about the main agenda at the Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu, which was climate change. Today, Nick focuses on other areas covered in the forum. The 50th Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu had a range of issues on the agenda. Climate was the big issue and really the the focus of the week. For Obviously, the host government really wanted to push climate, but there was a lot other talked about. One of the important ones was West Papua. 
Vanuatu for a long time has been actively supporting uh, the West Papuan nationalist movement and they were represented in Tuvalu by Benny Wender, the chair of the United Liberation Movement of West Papua and Jacob Rumbiak, the spokesperson. They were lobbying for more urgent action around human rights and were very successful at the forum. Um, One of the issues that was raised was, and this is the first time it's been in a forum communique, a call to, quote, strongly encourage Indonesia to um, allow UN Human Rights Commissioner Michelle Bachelet, former president of Chile, to travel to Papua for um, a human rights monitoring visit. Now, that invitation Indonesia issued it some years ago never happened, and the forum, for the first time, called for greater UN involvement, human rights commissioner involvement in, in the human rights abuses. Um, and we've seen protests all through West Papua in the last week or two following an incident uh, on Indonesian National Day when um, West Papua students were called monkeys and there's been literally rioting in the streets um, over the last couple of weeks. There's also been, since December last year, a major Indonesian military operation in a, in a regency in a province known as Ndugu, sorry, Nduga, which is um, an area where Indonesia is building a major freeway through the, that uh, rural area. A number of uh, uh, Indonesian road workers were shot last December, and since then there's been a massive militarization and police uh, deployment by Indonesia, enormous human rights violation where they've been burning villages. It's estimated about 30,000 people have been displaced, and even you know Jakarta media, Jakarta Post reported, I saw the other day, 182 people at least have died from exposure, um, lack of food and so on, when they've been driven out of their homes which have been burnt by the Indonesian military. People living in the forest, literally, with no food supplies and really terrible conditions. And that's been going since December last year. So West Papua, you know, the call for human rights action was very strong this year. And although the forum always says, and has since 2000, we recognise Indonesian sovereignty over Papua and West Papua. This, I think, was one of the strongest communiques, you know, about the human rights issue. Countries like Australia, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, support Indonesian sovereignty over West Papua, um, but many other countries, and not just MSG countries like Vanuatu, a Melanesian spearhead group countries that have supported the West Papuans forever, um, but, you know, Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, uh, Nauru, Tonga, um, are taking up this issue in ways uh, very strongly. And they'll speak out at this year's opening of the UN General Assembly once again on this question. And Bougainville, the much-delayed referendum vote? Bougainville wasn't discussed publicly. Um, certainly in bilateral meetings it came up. Um, people are monitoring the progress towards a referendum, which has been delayed twice now. Uh, there's a commission led by former Irish uh, leader uh, Bernie Ahern, um, who helped create the Good Friday Appeal, uh, a Good Friday Agreement back in Ireland. He's now leading the process towards a referendum. It's likely that um, when the vote proceeds in November, the uh, people of Bougainville will vote in a majority yes in favour of independence, but the issue has to go to the PNG Parliament. And it's a new situation on the ground because um, Peter O'Neill, the former Prime Minister, who was very much opposed to independence, has been replaced by his former Finance Minister, James Marape. And Marape is a bit more cautiously open to discussing issues. Um, when he came to Australia, he was quite sharp about climate change. He was calling for the closure of uh, uh, the detention centre up in uh, 
in Manus, uh, where people are still housed, even though it's been declared illegal by the PNG Supreme Court. Um, so Marape is moving quietly, but Bougainville just wasn't talked about publicly. West Papua, yes, but Bougainville wasn't on the agenda. And part of the reason is that the autonomous Bougainville government has never come lobbying the regional organisations, the sub-regional grouping, the Melanesian Spearhead Group, which obviously covers the larger Melanesian nations, nor the Forum. I think what might be interesting, however, is if Bougainvillians vote yes for independence and PNG Parliament says no, at that point you might see the autonomous Bougainville government come to the regional bodies and ask for support. And it's interesting that next year's forum is in um, uh, Vanuatu, uh, which has historically been a strong supporter of the right to self-determination for the people of Kanaki, New Caledonia, for the West Papuans. Next year's forum to be held in Vanuatu on the 40th anniversary of their independence, symbolically, could be a moment when Bougainville does make the regional agenda, but it certainly didn't this year. What about guest workers coming to Australia? Well, apart from Michael McCormack's really stupid intervention saying, oh, that if people are worried about survival, they can come and pick fruit. That went down like a ton of bricks, let me tell you, with Pacific Island governments who are saying, hang on, we're making profits for Australian businesses and you're making stupid comments like that. Um, That really angered an awful lot of people. Once again, it wasn't high on the agenda. Um, Australia's seasonal worker program has been expanding in recent years. Under the Step Up, Australia's created a second scheme called the Pacific Labor Scheme, which allows people to come for three years on temporary visas. Um, There's a significant rise in the numbers going to both New Zealand and Australia under these seasonal worker programs. There's a lot more focus, though, on potential exploitation. And we know that in Australia... One of the features, one of the structural features of our economy nowadays is that there's an awful lot of migrant workers, temporary migrant workers, in the Australian economy. And in fact, the number of Pacific seasonal workers is a very small part of that. Um, You know, there's lots and lots of working holidaymakers, backpackers, not only from Europe, but also from Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, Korea, other places. Big numbers, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming through working holidaymakers, there was what they used to call the 457 skilled worker program. Students, you know, students are supposed to work 20 hours a week, but many of them work pretty much full-time and study, you know, late at night. Um, so you find that sectors like hospitality, like um, service industries, 7-Elevens, taxi driving, and the whole Deliveroo, Menulog, all these sort of uh, rip-off precarious work franchises um, involve the exploitation of people paid cash in hand, not given their proper penalty rates, not given the protection that they're due in the workplace around sexual harassment, around being ripped off by their boss. You know, George Columbaris with his $8 million property portfolio, that sort of matches the $7.8 million of wages he stole from his workers in the hospitality industry. So these industries, horticulture, sex work, hospitality, services, are often poorly unionised despite work from, you know, hospitality unions and and others, often casualised labour, and lots of non-citizen workers. And one of the real challenges for the Australian labour movement is solidarity with non-citizen workers, particularly when you've got a situation where Australia is deporting, for example, New Zealanders who committed criminal offences, you know, often in their youth or teens, um, that's coming back to haunt them and they're being deported after their uh, sentences. 
that's an issue of some gripe because there's you know more than half a million New Zealanders who have work rights in Australia. So figures vary between 1.4 and 1.8 million temporary migrant workers in the Australian economy. Now that's not a blip, that's a structural part of the economy. And so for Pacific workers coming to pick fruit, particularly in horticulture, now moving into other sectors of agriculture, aged care, um, the potential for exploitation is serious. And there's a real need for trade unions, community groups and others to show solidarity with Pacific workers when they come here to ensure that they're not being ripped off, to ensure that their wages and conditions are okay, that there's no sexual harassment, that their housing and pastoral care support is there. Um, you know, a lot of people want to come through seasonal work programs because the wages are better um, than you can earn at home and it's very popular business to come to Australia but the potential for exploitation, um, even deaths in the workplace. There's been more than a dozen seasonal workers who've died um, since the program began uh, in 2012, something that needs greater solidarity from the Australian labour movement. What were your main feelings as you got on a plane to come home? Well, I went to Fiji afterwards um, and uh, met with colleagues there, spoke to students um, um, at the University of South Pacific. Um, There was a really interesting dialogue with um, graduate students at USP about the forum. Look, people are not surprised that Australians get it wrong at the forum. Pacific Islanders have a good knowledge of the contemporary Australian politics They've seen the turmoil in Canberra where successive Prime Ministers have been nobbled by the mining industry and by the Conservative shock jocks that back the mining industry where Prime Ministers uh, have been, you know, had their climate policies gutted over more than a decade. Pacific Islanders are well aware of the colonial legacies of Australia, the, the blackbirding of indentured labourers that was a central part of the colonial economy. Pacific Islanders know in ways that most Australians don't that the first piece of legislation passed by our federal government was the Pacific Islanders Labourers Act of 1901 that deported thousands of so-called Kanakas, the South Sea Islanders who were indentured labourers building the cotton and sugar industry in Queensland. So, you know, most Australians don't understand the dynamics of the Pacific that Pacific Islanders are engaging with all of the global challenges that face us, how to deal with China, how to deal with climate change, how to deal with the pandemic of violence against women. And, you know, it's an old cliche, but it's true. Pacific Islanders are actors, not victims. They're not sitting back. Um, They're proposing very concrete steps, like shutting down the coal industry, like re-diverting fossil fuel subsidies to more useful production, like replenishing the Green Climate Fund. You know, they're, they're not lying there saying, oh, help us, help us, help us. They're, they're saying, guys, here's a strategy that you should be taking up. And they're disappointed that Australian citizens don't engage very well with the contemporary Pacific. They're disappointed that the Australian media misreports, you know, what's going on in the region, um, only focuses on coups and crisis and not on the actions being taken by the Pacific to address all these global challenges. So I think there's a danger that Australians misunderstand the dynamism of the region. And the danger is Australia is not the only game in town. So when Scott Morrison comes to the leaders' retreat and says, well, I'm on the record, you know, our money is 
helping all you guys. That's true. More than a billion dollars a year goes to the Pacific. Well, it's boomerang aid, but hey. But there are alternatives. And not just China. India, the European Union, Korea, Indonesia, a whole range of countries are now engaging with the Pacific, looking for advantage, looking for UN votes, looking for their own strategic interests. But we're not the only game in town. And Prime Minister Bainimarama said that. I thought you were our friend. If you're not, well, we've got other friends now. And uh, that's where Morrison is stuck, because he's told the Americans, we've got the Pacific under control. And I'm not sure that's true. That's a significant strategic problem for Australia, that if it wants to maintain a policy of strategic denial, keeping China out, keeping other hostile powers out of the islands, to our north, to our east, then it involves engaging in true partnership with our neighbours. And I'm not persuaded that this government is capable of doing that, given its addiction to coal. We might have red lines about what we want in the communique, so do our neighbours have red lines. And um, Australia's in trouble in that sense, because there are alternatives. You know, the old days when Australia, New Zealand, France and the United States, maybe Japan, were the only players, those days are long gone. And the fixation that the Australian media and the Australian government has on China misunderstands that some more significant players are stepping up. Germany, for example, I had breakfast one day with the German ambassador. They're a significant actor within the European Union and they're looking to play a much greater role in funding for development internationally. And Germany's a pretty strong economy. Um, The French... The days when we hated the French of a rainbow warrior and nuclear testing are long gone. President Macron is coming to Tahiti in April next year and is going to host a France-Oceania summit. So the Germans, the French, are looking to undercut Australia's economic interests in the region for their own strategic interests, of course. But um, you know, there's not much love in this, but uh, they're very much placing themselves as allies with the Pacific on the climate agenda. And Macron, who has his own problems at home with the gilets jaunes and so on, can say, look at Trump. Look at what he's doing to trade. Look at what he's doing to climate. Look at what Morrison's doing on the climate agenda. We are your friends. So the Pacific has more friends than I think Australians understand. And that's Nick McClellan, journalist, author, researcher, a friend of the Pacific, talking about his recent trip to... I'm not sure whether it's Tuvalu or Tuvalu, I'll say both. Anyway, he was there. Now, if you've missed any of this program today, you can listen for a whole week. Audio on demand, it's called, and you get there by going 3cr.org.au slash and put the program name, not only this program, but all the programs on 3CR, or you can have it podcasted to your computer or your phone. 3cr.org slash the program Tuesday home time couple of community announcements and then it's time for Dumbo Law <laughs> 